Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast was recorded in Brisbane, Australia, the land of the Turrbal, Yagara, and Yagurable people. And we acknowledge all elders past, present, and emerging. Hi, y'all. It's Matt Young from the Story Tunder Podcast. Welcome back for another exciting episode. This episode was recorded live at Backdock Arts in Brisbane, Australia on Monday, the 17th of August with the theme, Okay, Now I'm Frightened. You'll hear some familiar people and a new storyteller as well, but we're going to kick it off with a Story Chunder favorite. This is Lorna Bremner, and she's telling us about an unbelievable thing that happened to her when she was a university student in Colorado. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Yeah, good. Good. Um, the story I'm going to tell you tonight happened to me while I was in university uh, many moons ago in Colorado. And uh, this occurred during one of my shifts, and it was the last time I ever did this job, and it was possibly the last time I could have ever survived on this earth. It was a very dangerous evening. So here we go. Like every uh, uni student, I had a very busy life, smoking a lot of weed and uh, drinking a ton and then attending classes periodically. And I needed to have a good job that was going to, you know, kind of at least feed my lifestyle a little bit, but fit in with my lifestyle, you know what I mean? Like, not interrupt my life too much. So I got this job, door-to-door window sales for houses. Well, that was the job we went. I'll, I'll break it down for you. Basically, the way it worked is that after school, around 5 o'clock, we would all, like, go and meet at this company's office, and then they would break us into groups, and they'd give us a little map that had like a highlighted zone on it that we were supposed to go and canvas for the evening. Uh, the map, this map was of a neighborhood in Denver, Colorado, which is about an hour away from where we went to university. And it's a major city, it's a capital city of Colorado, a huge city in the US. So then these neighborhoods were actually picked by the company on purpose because they contained houses that were, let's say old to be nice, and let's say probably decrepit, to be honest. Because they, they picked these houses on purpose because they were the ones that needed the windows the most. <laughs> but obviously the company didn't consider, or maybe they did consider, that the people who occupied those houses were far more concerned with putting food on the table, like clothing their children, than updating the infrastructure of their houses. But that didn't seem to bother them. They sent us there anyway. So quick recap. This company was sending teenaged uni students into a city an hour away from where we lived at nighttime 
into a major U.S. city, into neighborhoods that were dilapidated and falling apart, unsupervised, to knock on people's doors and interrupt them at dinner time. <laughs> like it sounds, look, it's, I, like I said, it's not the best job I've ever had. It was a fucking nightmare. I didn't do many shifts, but, and okay, so then also you get paid for this job by, uh, it's an hourly wage, which is good, because commission sales would have been not good. Obviously nobody was buying shit. <laughs> right, but uh, the way we got paid is if you, by the end of the shift, you had to turn in five pieces of paper that had a person's name on it and a phone number. And I don't, I, not one of those names or phone numbers ever came from a person who answered the door. We would just go and sit in the park, smoke a bunch of weed, and come up with my own name. <laughs> Write them down on the paper and then turn them in. So anyways, this night, this shift turned out, was started exactly just the way all the rest of them do. I got super stoned, and then I went to work as per the protocol. And then I got divided up into my groups and put into a car with a bunch of strangers. Uh, not to mention, this job also had a lot of turnover, as you can imagine. There were I never ever had the same shift with two people. <laughs> like, I don't know anyone ever. Uh, so I get into a car with a bunch of strangers, and the guy that's driving us is, I'm, I won't put it nicely, but he was just a fucking dick. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he, uh, he's the kind of guy that was a real nerd, but not in a cute way, not in a fun way, but like in a, I'm really trying not to be what kind of way. And so he gets in the car and he's like, you know what, we should totally blaze up. Cause I, I think sick, to, I like driving stunt. And I looked at him like, mate, I don't want you to be cool right now. I want you to deliver me safely into the heart of a dangerous neighborhood in Denver in an hour. So I'd like it if you didn't smoke weed. He's like, nah, it relaxes me. <laughs> it's gonna be good. Like a stone driver is a little bit dangerous, but a stone driver who can't admit that he's a total loser is a real liability. <laughs> so we, um, yeah, he blazed up. Probably listening to Bob Marley in the car. I don't know. We, I was getting there, and I all I could do is just like hold on to the side of the car and just fucking pray that I was going to make it there alive. And luckily for us, we did make it to the heart of Inglewood safely as safely as you can be in Inglewood at the middle of the night, unsupervised. Uh, by the time I got there also, this guy had uh, told me that one of his favorite pastimes is conning doctors into giving him prescription pills. He used to like, Google the symptoms and then like, go to the doctor and get prescribed prescription. He's a real go-getter. So, um, so I get, we get to this place and he drops me off at the edge of our zone on the map. Another girl from across the city who was part of our team had come over from Denver and she met us there. And then the boys drove off in the opposite direction and they met, they were onto the opposite side of the neighborhood. The task was for both of us to canvas the neighborhood in pairs towards each other and we'd meet in the middle and then we'd go home at the end of the shift. So I met with Amber, we're talking shit, we're having a good time, we're smoking weed in a park, we're writing fake names down on a piece of paper as per the protocol as usual. While this is happening, we're sitting in a park, and then all of a sudden, oh, I forgot to mention a very important detail, but I can't mention it now because I'll give away a punchline, so forget it. <laughs> you know this important detail is coming. Um, 
So anyways, while we're sitting there in the park, all of a sudden a fucking helicopter appears above our head with a spotlight on it. And this is not uncommon in a city as big as Denver, very normal standard procedure, especially in a city like Inglewood. Um, so we were all right at first, and we were kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, the old helicopter search party. Then it started doing fucking laps above our heads. And we were going, I feel real good about this. Like, we're stunned, obviously, so we're starting to come up with some pretty wacky theories. Like, is it an escaped predator from the zoo? Maniac from the insane asylum? Fucking prisoner, convict escaped, whatever. Uh, you probably like me an old person, but our brains are getting away with us. So we're starting to, we're kind of like getting a little bit nervous. The helicopter is going, and it's really starting to distract us from writing down fake names, so it's time. We think that it's best that we probably make a move. We stayed on the streets that were best lit and headed back towards the center of the neighborhood where the pickup zone was, because this shit was getting scary, right? Uh, we finally we get back to where we're supposed to meet the boys, and luckily they had the same idea as us, because the helicopter was obviously circling their heads as well, and they were like, you guys, I don't know what the fuck's going on, but I don't feel good about this. And I was like, yeah, you're totally right. This is a terrible, terrible idea. We are way too stunned to be in Inglewood with a helicopter buzzing off your head. I got weed on me, you know what I mean? Like, I don't need to be caught by the police right now. So we're like, fuck this, we're out of here. So we get in the car. Uh, we've rewritten down enough fake names to kind of get away with it for the night, so it's going to be fine. So we get back in the car. I, for some stupid fucking reason, get back in the car with the prescription pill guy. I don't know why. Like, I had, a, I had at this moment, I had a choice to get in the car with Amber and go safely home. But I did not, you guys, and I don't know why to this day. I have no idea because things are about to get much worse. We get in the car, we've escaped Inglewood, the helicopter is quietly buzzing in the background, and we're like, fucking, all right. We panicked a little bit, no big deal. We got a little bit paranoid, we're a little bit too stunned, it's fine, I'm on my way home, everything's fine. So now we're driving on the motorway, on the freeway, this is like a five lane freeway in the city of Denver on the way back to Boulder. We're cruising along, and I'm musing about uh, that I should probably definitely smoke less weed because I'm starting to get paranoid. I'm losing my shit. I'm judging this guy. He's a good dude, I'm sure. It's not fair. We're cruising along, and then on our left, this is America, by the way, so it's the other way to what we're used to. On our left was a giant semi-truck passing us. Big, old, huge semi-trailer. And I'm looking over at this thing like, oh, yeah, we must not be going fast enough because this guy's passing us and he's in a big truck and we're in a Honda Civic. And then I look over to this side and there's an on-ramp coming up on this side. And on the on-ramp is this semi-truck's twin, a big old fucking truck, humongous semi-truck coming up this way. And so I'm looking at this truck going, why are they passing us? And what's this guy doing? He's merging onto the freeway. And then I look over next to my driver, or to my driver and I realize he has not seen any of this. Whether it's the prescription pills of the weed or fucking I don't know what, he did not know that this was happening. So I made the noise that you make when you don't, you can't talk. I was like, and then this thing, so this truck starts coming up and is merging into our lane. We've got nowhere to go because the other side of this lane, or right next to us, is a semi truck. So this semi truck starts coming in and it merges into our lane. We are like a sandwich press, like a panini, going right in between these two semi-trucks. So I'm like, oh, I make the noise, and he like snaps out of it, goes, oh, fuck, pushes the gas pedal down, and we just shoot out just in front of the merging semi-trailer. And we all, like, 
all of us look around at each other in that crazy state of shock, like, holy fuck. We were almost dead. We were almost completely sandwiched between these two trucks. And we all start laughing because we're all high. And it's a, we were like, Jesus, we were almost dead. Thank fuck. And so I look over at him like, hey, good, good job. Like, what a reaction time. That was amazing. He relaxes a little bit. And as he relaxes, he just takes his foot off of the accelerator. Just the tiniest little bit. And then in the next minute, I look behind us and there is a horrific crunching. And that semi-trailer that just merged up behind us is now in the back of the car. It has driven up the boot of the car, mid straight through the whole boot, and is the, the grill of the truck is in the back of my car. I, I'm just, I'm in the front seat, thank God, in the passenger seat. There's two boys behind me and there's a guy next to me. And we're going, uh, uh, no words. This is a time for no words. The back window pops, shatters everywhere, and I just see the two boys go like this. And this truck is like, <sighs> then, I don't know what happened. I turn around to face the front and suddenly the entire car flips sideways, spins around sideways. Must've been the pressure from the wheels at the back of this semi-truck on the back of the uh, boot. The car flips sideways. And the next thing I know, I'm looking down at the pavement like this as pavement just shoots past my window. The car is now on two wheels this way, just careening down the highway, skidding on two wheels. And I'm in the passenger seat like this, just going, oh, fuck, time, whole, the whole time just slowed right down. I was super stoned, mind you. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, there's a lot of weed in the car. This is real bad. <laughs> and then there's lines going past me. Then, again, miraculously, I don't know what the fuck happened, I don't know how, the car, spins off of the other of the semi truck and then we just start doing loops we do three spins smash into that that guardrail three spins smash into that guardrail and then we come to like a pathetic stop on the side of the freeway the truck's behind us it's pulled up behind us and we all just look at each other like what in the fuck there is weed everywhere <laughs> all over us are smashed, the glass is smashed. The boys are good behind them, like they're crunched. They're like this, but they're fine. And then, so I'm just, we're just kind of like, what the fuck? There's sirens everywhere. There's an ambulance that start to pull up. And I just, I don't know how my door was still functioning, but I just did one of these. And I look forward and I see Amber. She's pulled over because she, uh, luckily, was driving behind us. She saw it. She pulls over in front of us and she's running towards me. And she runs up to me and she's like, oh my God, I thought you were dead. And I was like, turn around, we're going, let's go. And I walked away from that moment, walked away from that scene, never saw any of those fucking dudes again. Didn't talk to the cops, didn't talk to anyone. I just said, get in the car, we're leaving. <laughs> so the moral of the story is, if a guy seems like he's not much of a weed smoker, but insists on smoking weed and driving you to a dangerous city in the middle of Denver, say no. Also, as a fun little note, the next day when I checked the news, there was a statewide manhunt alert on the television for an escaped convict who was insane, violent and dangerous, who had escaped out of Inglewood Correctional Facility that was in the neighborhood. <laughs> 
that we were canvassing. So even though the, the uh, car accident was scary, we were way more danger. We were way more, way more danger in that neighborhood that night. So true fucking story. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Lorna. Our next storyteller called me out of the blue. This guy's name is Ian Dowling. He is an aspiring stand-up comedian and started just before COVID and uh, had a very short run before everything was closed down. So he was really keen to get up and um, tell us a story. And it is actually COVID-related. It's about returning uh, from Sydney, Australia to Brisbane and having to go into hotel quarantine. Enjoy, Ian Dowling. Hello everyone. Hi. So um, I'm kind of really relieved to be here because uh, like what Matt said, I started doing stand-up in March and it didn't last very long because of the COVID. But I had an opportunity last month to go to an open mic when I was down in Sydney working for the week. So the plan was to go to Sydney from Monday to Friday with my boss because the office down there that I work for is not doing very well. But we got there on Monday, the COVID hotspots had started to pop up in Sydney. And on the Tuesday morning, our boss called us and said, look, it's better that you guys get out of Sydney because as of 12 o'clock today, Liverpool is becoming a hotspot. So we packed our bags, got out of the Airbnb, headed to the airport. But by the time we checked in, it was too late. They said, look, you're going to have to go to hotel quarantine in Brisbane because you've been in Liverpool in the last 14 days and you have no choice. So that's fine. Like work is paid for it. We're pretty lucky. All the other people had to pay for it themselves. So we get to Brisbane and how it works is the police and the army are at the airport, they wait for you there just after you get out of the gate and they put you on a bus, take you straight to the hotel. So in our case, it was uh, no hotel Brisbane airport. So we get there, they bring you into like one of them function rooms and they give you a bit of a briefing, they put your masks on, they tell you like you don't get a key for your room, all these different things. And at that point I stood up and I told them, look, I'm really a chronic sleepwalker and if I get locked somewhere, like I'll probably sleepwalk a lot more. But the rules are the rules anyway, so that's fine. We all check in and we get escorted to our room. So it's about midnight at this stage on a Tuesday night. Go to bed straight away, pretty tired. And about two hours later, 2 a.m., I open my eyes and there's someone in my room. And I can hear someone, I can see something, but it's really dark. You know what those airport hotels, you got really, really dark curtains. So I can't really see anything, but I'm terrified, I'm frightened. And I could just feel a presence in the room. My heart is racing and I just dive over the bed. I run towards a little strip of light that's under the door, open the door, jump outside. And as the door closes behind me and slams behind me and it's bright and I can feel the breeze in the corridor, I realize I've been sleepwalking the whole time. And the door is closed. I'm in pink and yellow flary bonds on these and they're like way too small for me for some reason. And I'm just standing there and I'm still knocking on my door because as you wake up and sleepwalk and you kind of, you've been in a trance, they're still doing things with your body that you're not really aware of. So I'm knocking on my door and I realize, okay, well, that's, there's no one in there. So I'll stop knocking now. And I'm just kind of standing there and I'm looking down and I'm thinking, fuck, like, what do I do now? So I was like, okay, we've got to go to reception. I start walk, walking towards the elevator, the door opens, it's all those mirrors around the elevator and I can just I catch my own eyes and I kind of look away in embarrassment because I don't want to make eye contact with myself. So I go down to the ground level and I'm just kind of looking down and I realise like I'm just in this, they look like kids on these, I don't even know why I bought them but anyway. Get out, ground floor, the doors open and I can see like the night manager at the desk like right over the other side and then there's like police and then there's like military on that side. And because you don't have a key, that's the only way to do it. So the night manager looks at me, and then he looks at the police, and then he looks at the army, and then he looks back at me, and then the army guy looks at me, and then the police guy looks at me, looks back at the night manager, and they're all just kind of puzzled. 
And then the policeman realizes it's his job to do something because there's like a half naked guy. So I start walking across and he jumps up and he kind of walks really fast and he's shouting, sir, where's your mask? And he's pointing at his face. And I didn't really know what to say. And then he keeps walking, he says again, he's like, sir, where's your mask? And like, the only thing I could think of saying was, well, like, I didn't, I forgot to bring my pockets with me, so I don't have it in there anyway. And he didn't really like that at all. Like, he was really serious. Well, he looked serious, but he had a mask on, so I'm not sure. So he took out, he put his hand in his pocket like a cowboy and took out a mask. Because they have like the big cargo pants, so they have like, I don't know, 800 masks. And he pulls one out, he scrunches it, and he throws it at me. But like, a mask is more like a parachute than a projectile, so it just kind of goes, Poop, and then falls in front of him. And he picks it up again, and he scrunches it again. I was like, that's not doing it again, is he? Yeah. And he throws it again, and it goes like two more feet. So I was like, okay, I'm already embarrassed. So I thought I'd pick it up from at this point. There's no point having two embarrassed men in a reception area. And I put on the mask, and then he's just like, what are you doing, mate? And I'm like, well, I was sleepwalking, now I'm just an awake guy with no clothes on. And I was like, can we just go alive before anything else happens? So he says, okay, let's go. He escorts me up. And I'm like pretty awkward in an elevator at the best of times with one other person. And we get in, it's all the mirrors, we're both standing on the same side, I don't know why. And I'm looking in the mirror and I can see an infinite amount of me's and an infinite amount of him's. And he's got like the body camera and his body camera's like looking straight at me and I'm kind of like cold and shriveled and tight on these. And he's got like taser and a gun. And like, I don't really know what to say. I'm just kind of praying myself, like, please don't go on a boner. Like, please don't go on a boner. <laughs> like, I'm 34, but I'm kind of still a child at heart, so I still get like random boners all the time. So the door opens on level four, and he brings me to room 31, and he, he swipes the door open, but kind of like, you know, when you're on a date, you're not really sure if the magic's gonna happen, and there's like this three second eye contact. And when you have a mask on, it's like really intense because you can't see the mouth or nose, so it keeps you really focused on the eyes. So it feels like ages, and then I don't really know what to say. I'm just kind of like, the nightcap? And he's like, not like into jokes at all. So I go in, close the door, and then well, I just put like three, three chairs up against the door, and a couple of pillows, I think that was sorted. And then I kind of spot in the bathroom, there's like a fancy kind of timber thing with tissues in it, with the folded tissue. And so then I just did what any mature single guy, I've got the tissues. I went to my bed, masturbated, had a great sleep, and then that was, Quarantine day one, and then the next 14 days were just went swimmingly, so it was really fine after that. But, uh, that's my story. Next up, we have Virag Dambe. Virag is an actor here in Brisbane and writer as well, and um, and she told us an experience of, well, I guess the lesson for this is always check your props before you go on stage for any theatrical production. Enjoy Virag's story. work in the performing arts industry and I think it was about two years ago I was working on a show called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Does anyone, is anyone familiar with that book or yes. story? Yes. If you're not, basically it's about these patients in a mental ward and all these things happen to them and there's lots of corruption and there's a really evil nurse um, but then the main character has these friends who are basically prostitutes and I played one of the prostitutes um, and uh, you know being an 18 year old and having you know your mother come and see the show when you're not very much on stage is quite an experience in itself. Anyway, for those that are familiar with the story know that there's this scene when this prostitute character brings in alcohol to the boys so they can have a party. Whoop! And this uh, alcohol is concealed in these medication bottles. Um, and we were in the middle of tech week, 
And as always, we obviously know that when we're on stage, we can't drink real alcohol, otherwise we get in trouble. So in these uh, medication bottles, we always had water. Um, but it was like water with different food colouring in it, so it looked like wine, it looked like booze, but it tasted revolting. Anyway, uh, so it was the last night of tech, and my character went in, she had a booze with her, um, and we went to the medication kind of cabinet, and as always, like the little kind of medication bottles were there, and we would drink them. And this one night, I, I drank, I don't know, about this much of a bottle, and it was, I don't know, it had this really weird texture in my mouth. I was like, this isn't water, but this also doesn't taste like food colouring. I don't know what this tastes like. Anyway, so I did the rest of my scene, pashed where I had to pash, got off stage for a quick change, and like my stomach was making these really weird noises, and I was like, ooh, I wonder what was in that, what was in that bottle. So I went back on stage, pashed a few more people, uh, <laughs> you know, as a prostitute, what else are going to do? Uh, <laughs> And while I was on stage, like I was, I just got very overwhelmed. I was feeling very dizzy, and like the whole world started spinning. I was like, "Oh gosh!" Um, and so, luckily, that was kind of my last bit of the show. And then I sprinted off stage. And basically, behind the theater, there was like this green room, and then behind the green room was like this garden kind of area. And so I sprinted out there into like the furthest away corner I could find, and I was just vomiting my guts out, as you do. <laughs> And, um, and yeah, I was like, and I kept on thinking about it. it, must have been something I drank. Like, there's no other way, because before I drank whatever was in this medication bottle, I was perfectly okay. Um, and so all my other cast members were like, oh, but it can't be anything in the bottle. Like, that's always water, Vera, right? Duh. I was like, well, thanks, yeah, like, I'm 18, but I'm a bit smarter than that. Anyway. Um, and so I went and talked to our stage manager, um, who was also our props manager. This was a like small kind of independent theatre company in, in the northern suburbs, not going to name names. <laughs> Don't want anyone to get in trouble tonight. <laughs> um, and I said to him, I was like, oh, like, um, let's, let's call this lady Jill. And I was like, Jill, like, I just, I really don't feel well. And I, like, I drank... Um, this much from this bottle, and this bottle had a peroxide label on it. Um, and it was about this big bottle, and I drank most of it. And I was like, I just want to know what was in the, in the bottle, because it, it didn't taste like water, and it didn't taste like food colouring. And I was just like, oh, well, that, that was peroxide. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so um, after that, I was like, okay, all right. Uh, I, I don't really know what the protocol is to do now. Um, and so I kind of, like, the show finished, like, I went up to the director and was like, hey, um, so I think I, um, I think I may have been poisoned, uh, but, like, uh, my throat's a bit sore and I've got this tingling feeling in my stomach and uh, I've got none of dinner left in my body and I just thought I'd let you know, you know, if you want to be like, it's their report, I don't know how it goes, I can't know, what are my actors there, Joe Peroxide, whoops! <laughs> um, and he was like, oh, like, do you want me to take you to the hospital?
paramedics, as you do, and the funniest thing was explaining to them, oh, like, I'm an actor, I wasn't trying to kill myself, there was an illegal substance on stage, and I drank it. No, I didn't think there would be an illegal substance on stage. No, it wasn't intentional. Of course I wouldn't have drunk it. Um, so that was quite an experience in itself. Um, and then knowing me, like, of the phone dies, like, in the middle of this conversation. And so what happens is I get about four ambulances show up at my house. Um, and, um, and they checked everything and everything was okay. They didn't take me in. Um, but that experience has definitely left me quite a little bit uh, frightened of what I consume on stage. So now I make sure that I actually go to the props people and go, oh, hey, is this an illegal substance or not? Because I just, I don't know whether I'm going to be alive after this. Um, but yeah, that's my, that's my scary story for tonight. And that is why you always need to check your props <laughs> so you don't poison yourself. Uh, hilarious. So uh, usually this would be about the time when the episode would be wrapping up. But um, this mm, uh, bastard, Dooney, uh, who's a great uh, storyteller, uh, I told him, you know, keep your story to about eight minutes. I think his story goes on for about a half an hour. But it is a bloody good one. It's one that I've actually had on uh, the podcast before in a shorter version. But you know what? Sometimes a good yarn is worth retelling, and so therefore, uh, enjoy, sit back, relax. This could be its own episode. <laughs> this is Dooney telling the story of following his instincts and um, following up on that email scam where the Nigerian prince is asking you for money. So uh, anyway, um, yeah, here to tell a story tonight. Um, my story takes us back to a time when um, things were a lot simpler, you know, like um, when we live with like a secure naivety about the world. And of course, I am talking about the days before, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and Tumblr and TikTok. And um, it was also the days before online dating. I don't know about you guys, but I fondly remember the days before you know, eHarmony and Tinder Surprise. <laughs> and RSPCA. <laughs> Go for it, Abby. Maybe not that loud. It was the days um, when we watched TV on a TV. Yeah? And um, we... We watched TV on a TV. And email was becoming a really important part of our daily lives, yeah? And it's what I like to call the days of dial-up. <laughs> right, hopefully you get that. We tried, Matt, we tried. We tried. No, that's good, Abby, don't worry about it. Turn it off, though, for fuck's sake. It's what I commonly call, yeah, the days of dial-up, all right, and this story centres around the phenomenon of email, and specifically like the early days of what's now known as catfishing, all right, so um, this story goes back to me, I was in my mid, early to mid-twenties, okay, and um, everything was going pretty well, I had a good job, I had a great girlfriend, 
I paid off like all the major debts, like my university debts and stuff. I just finished paying them off. And I'd even just bought my first new car. All right, so everything seemed to be going along well. So what I did is uh, I quit my job, I broke up with my girlfriend, I packed up my life and I went back <laughs> Yeah, good life choice that one. <laughs> so anyway, and um, when I was backpacking, I uh, was in Scotland at one point, and if you've ever been to Scotland, it's a beautiful place. It really is. I walked right across across the, the country, actually the fault line. There's a big a geographic, geographical crack through the country where the locks are. Anyway, um, I think that's why the Scots are a bit crazy. But um, I can't go into too much detail about that just now. I'm telling another story. So, um, but if you ever get a chance here, go to Scotland. It's beautiful. So I was in Scotland, all right, and um, I was checking my emails. Now I should say at this point, back in the days of dial-up, all right, when you needed to check an email, check your email, you had to either go to like an internet cafe or a library or like a friend with a connection so you could get on to check your emails. Yeah, so I was in a, um, in this uh, library of this tiny Scottish town, Drumna Drocket it's called, and I was in there and I was checking my emails. And I got this email from a fella called Dr. Sani Ahmed, okay? And Sani, he um, sent me this follow email and he basically said he was a retired Nigerian bank official. <laughs> yeah. And um, he had just recently retired with the Prince's recognition, no less, <laughs> for his services to the financial sector. All right. And because Sani had um, a colleague who had done some business with me in the past, he had identified me as someone he could trust. Okay. And um, so obviously you guys at this point, you understand this is a hoax email. And, uh, but this was like early days. I think they call it the Nigerian 419 now, all right? But this was real early days of the Nigerian 419. And this was either, I don't know if it was the very first email I got about this, but it was like really early days. So, and another thing is, I don't know if they'd done any research on me or if they'd just gotten lucky because a year beforehand I was working in an export business and, it, and um, if any of you guys know about exporting stuff around the world, there's a thing called a letter of credit and that's when the banks hold the money on behalf of both parties, etc. So basically it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that my name had popped up some, on some paperwork in a foreign bank. Okay, so I probably think they just got lucky though. So um, I, uh, I, I sort of had to think about this and um, that, you know, I, 99, no, sorry. So yeah, basically at that point I just said to him, oh, well, why not? So I said to Sani, oh yeah, I'd be happy to hear his proposal. Okay, so Sani writes back to me and he, and he basically told me that over his career he had embezzled 50 million US dollars, all right? But he couldn't access it in Nigeria and because he knew he could trust me, what he wanted me to do was go, he was going to send it as cash to a foreign uh, place, like an airport or something, to a customs and I could go and pick it up physically. And if I did that, I would receive five million US dollars. Okay, now 99% of me knew this was all bullshit. Okay, but 1%, 1% of me was like, what if? 
what if? You know? And 1% of what if is an intrepid thing. Oh, it's a really powerful thing to an intrepid young man like me. So I wrote back to Sonny and said I was in. <laughs> yep. and, then, and then the logistics started. Okay, let me tell you, it was a clusterfuck. Like they just sent me all these emails and they're like, his son, he's like, okay, he wants me to go to Cairo to pick it up. And I said, no, London will do. And then he goes, oh, he'll send it to Barcelona. And I said, no, London's, London's good. And then he said, oh, he'd send it to Paris. And I, I said, no, London works. And then he tried a bunch of other places, Berlin, Milan, Frankfurt, and that. And this went on for months. Now remember, as I said earlier, in the days of dollar, you had to go in and check emails. And so I was checking my emails really sporadically. You know, sometimes it'd be two days, four days, a week between checking them. And obviously up in Scotland. And so he'd been asking me for my phone number. And uh, one day, I don't know, I must have had a brain fart, I just gave him my phone number. And so then he started calling. He rang, as a, he was like a fucking stalker. He just kept ringing and ringing. And so on the odd occasion that I actually answered, he'd be like really urgent, he'd be like, Mr. Muldoon, Mr. Muldoon, we must act, in me, act immediately, you know, or the money will be gone. And he sort of really put the urgency on me. And I was like, oh, well, mate, I'm not sure. So we just did this rigmarole over and over. Uh, and then um, one day I left on a bus from Inverness, which is right up in the north of Scotland. Uh, and I got on the bus pretty hammered because I went from like a farewell party for me and they put me on a bus. And so I'm on the bus feeling great. But then as you know, it was like a 14 hour bus ride to London. So I started feeling pretty good at the start. And I was feeling pretty ordinary as it went along, as the hangover kicked in. And um, about halfway in the trip, my phone rings. It was just as we're coming into Birmingham, actually, if you've ever been there, it's a beautiful city. <laughs> yeah, someone's been there. <laughs> so, um, anyway, and that's where Sani rang me again. And he's really urgent and sort of angry and really pressuring me out. Mr. Muldoon, we must act immediately. You're, it will be gone, it will be all your fault. We must do something now. And I sort of, because I was feeling so ordinary, I just said, look, mate, you know, whatever. Like, we both know it's bullshit. Don't, don't have to. And I hung up. And I thought that would be it, to be honest. I thought, oh, that bloke will realise. And um, he left me alone for a little while. And then I, I got to London, and I'm sort of regretting my life choices then because I'm looking for a hostel with a hangover in the middle of the night and that sort of thing. So anyway, I found one, and then I was there for a few days. Actually, I met a lady from South Africa, and we hung out. We had this, like, this five-day romantic bliss what, and, but she was just in London, she'd finished her backpacking for a year or two and we just met her and she was basically on her way back to South Africa to go, get on with her life. So we had this five days of bliss and then she left and so I was sitting there in this shitty hostel feeling real sad, like I had the blues and um, then my phone rings and it's my old mate Sunny again. <laughs> right? And I'm feeling real bad and he rings and he's like, Pressure me again, I, I, you've got to give it to him for persistence. He didn't really have much flexibility in his style, but it's fucking persistent. So he's just at me again. Mr. Muldoon, we must do something now. We must do it now. It would be all your fault. All the money I've, I've worked for over the years, you know, he's making all his problem mine. And I sort of sat there and I was listening to him. And I said, well, so what, you can't send it to London then? And he goes, no, I can't send it. You know, because of all these reasons, he had a bunch of excuses, you know. And so I just said, and he's like, talking, you know, just continuously, and I just said, well, send it to Amsterdam. 
and there was this pause on the phone, like he just stopped. And then he goes, oh, I will get back to you. And he hung up. And within like 20 minutes, I get a text from him. And he's like, yep, we can send it to Amsterdam. He sent it. He's pretty confident, sent 50 million on a phone call. But anyway, um, he sent it and he said I would, his assistant would get in touch with me. And within a few minutes, my phone rang again with a Dutch number because I was smart enough to learn a few foreign international codes and this one was coming in on a different one. And um, this was now Mr. Michael Ramidi. And Michael was um, probably made Sani look relaxed. He was real pushy, eh? And so he's on the phone to me and we must meet, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I just said, okay, mate, rightio, well, I'll, um, I'll, get a, I'll get a ticket today. I'll see you there tomorrow. Like, and he's like, ooh. Ooh, okay, okay. So off I um, off I went that that day. I bought a ticket to Amsterdam, and um, I came back to the hostel, and I was just going to stay in the hostel one more night and then leave the next day. And now the ticket the, the ticket I got was for late in the evening, the next day. Like I think it left about five o'clock or something, so I had to hang out all day. But if, if you've ever stayed in hostels, they kick you out at fucking ten o'clock in the morning. So that and then that night I've come back from getting my ticket, I go into the hostel and there was this group of guys there and they've just plied me full of piss because they were real happy because somewhere in that five or six days beforehand we were having a conversation and I've just said to them, because they, they were living in this hostel and they were from Australia, they have been working there a few years and they didn't know about this tax loophole that if you're not a resident you can just get all your tax back. So they've been paying tax for three years and they're about to leave so they thought I was great because I said, oh, if you, just send this form and you'll get all your money back that you've paid tax for the last three years. So they've all got that back. They're like, fucking yes. So I walked in, they're like, oh, that's the guy. So they plied me full of piss for that night, which was unexpected, but I went along with it because I'm a friendly guy. And <laughs> so then we, um, so then the next morning, mate, of course, the hostel's booting me out. So I couldn't lie around and have a hangover or anything like that. So I was feeling horrible all day the next day because I was pretty, pretty, pretty full and pretty sideways the night before. So, um, and then that day actually, just to, as, a, as a point of interest, more than anything, is I got a phone call from Australia, which was pretty uncommon, because this is before Skype and stuff really, this is when international phone call days, and it was a mate of mine, and he was just giving me a quick ring to tell me he's getting married and would I be his best man, so I said, oh yeah, no worries, we had a really quick chat, but um, he then said, oh, so what are you up to? And just off a whim, I just said, oh, I'm just about to go and get on a plane to go and pick up 50 US million dollars. <laughs> and they just laughed like you guys. You just thought I was just being silly like I often am. And besides that, no one in the world knew where I was going and who I was meeting. So I, off I went. I went out to, um, what's the airport in London, the big one? Heathrow. Went out to Heathrow, got on the, got on the plane, flew over Skiffold. Now, part of the plan was, was to meet Michael at the airport, Mr. Ramidi, at the airport. And what I was going to do is when I got there, I'd just give him a ring or send him a text. And I'd sent him, because I'm really security conscious, I'd sent him my flight details. So he knew when I was coming in, what gate, the whole bit. So um, we get there, I, I pulled my phone out, but I was on some, you know, backpacking, fucking prepaid, shitty plan, so it didn't work. Uh, so then I went up to the public phones, which were still around back then. You, some of you guys mightn't remember them, but I tried that, but that was all in Dutch, and I was too hungover to work that out. So I um, just walked around, and I had this heaviest fuck backpack, I remember that. 
And I thought, I'll just wander around Skipal Airport and see who I reckon might, this guy might be. And I picked out three guys. The first guy I picked out was at a bar, really close to the gate that I was coming in on. And he was a massive man, ebony-coloured man. He was like such a like big man. And he had this beautiful bone suit on with a skivvy. And he's sitting at the bar with a cognac in front of him. And I'm like, oh, that could, that could be him. You know, that, that might be one of the guys. And I wandered around a bit later and I saw another guy wandering around about my height with a tan jacket. And he was really shifty looking. I thought, oh, that might, be, that might be him. And then I saw a third guy with like a matrix length black leather coat <laughs> and he was as 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 ebony as the first guy but he had he wasn't quite he was wasn't quite as tall but he was really thick set like a really strong looking man but he had a look in his eye that was frightening like if you, i looked him like whoa this guy's done some bad things i think so anyway that was my three picks so then i'm waiting around wandering around and i get to the gate i'm sort of hanging around it and my phone rings it actually rings in and it was Mr. Ramidi ringing me. And then there was kind of this, you know, I'm getting around thinking I'm some sort of fucking secret spy, you know, in my head. <laughs> and so I'm there walking around, I'm on the phone, yeah, how you going? And he's like, where are you, Mr. Morgan? Where are you? And I said, I'm at the gate. And he's like, so am I at the gate. He's like, put your hand up. And I'd see him, because the big guy, and he stood out, he was such a massive man. And he, um, he was standing up on the phone, the guy in the bone suit that was at the bar nearby. And he's standing near the gate. And I said, no, no, need to, mate, just turn around. And so that guy turned around. So I picked him out. It was my first pick. So by that time, that's reinforced in my mind that I should be fucking double like seven. <laughs> you know, I, I picked the guy, first pick, and that's him, you know. So I'm there. And also in this weird, because we both knew it was bullshit, but we're both going along with it. Like, um, it was like this, I don't know even how to explain it to this day, but this kind of outdoing each other. And the fact that he turned around and I'm standing there going, G'day, mate, here you go. <laughs> I'm sort of in, on top of him, you know what I mean? So then he pulls me into this airport bar and um, he made heaps of mistakes. I haven't got time to go into them all now, but we sat there for probably an hour, all right? And the plan was that I would take my passport and 7,000 euro, which I just found out about, as he told me in his plan, up to the customs desk, give them that, and they would give me this package of 50 million US dollars, <laughs> all right? So he's telling me this, and I'm going, yeah, no worries, that sounds good, just one point, one point I'm not too comfortable with. This is the first I've heard about the 7,000 euro. And he's like, oh, it's no trouble, no trouble, you'll get it straight back here. And this went on for quite a while, and I'd started off, I hadn't said I had 7,000 euro to start with. But um, after a while, uh, I don't know, I wasn't even drinking because I was too hungover, but I was, and I'm too tight to pay for a beer in the airport bar at that time. <laughs> So I, um, I just, at some point I just decided to tell him I did have 7,000 euro and that amped things up. He got really, really full on. And so we're sitting there and so he said, oh, you must do it now. And I said, well, I can't get it in the airport. No one told me. How was I supposed to bring it? So then we were like, righty-o, that's all right. We'll go into town. And it was pretty late. It was pretty late at this point. It must have been 9 or 10 o'clock at night in, in Holland. Because you lose an hour when you go that way. So it would have been, yeah, probably 10 o'clock or even a bit later actually, 10 or 11 o'clock. And so, right, the plan is we'll go into town, find somewhere to stay. Now remember, this, I probably should have pointed this out as well, Mr. Ramidi, he's um, Sani Ahmed's assistant who'd come from Nigeria to do this as well. He's only, and so in my mind, you know, in part of the story, he's just landed here today sometime or, or the night before. And so we're driving in, we're driving around, and I said, oh, mate, I'll just stay in the same hotel as you. 
Well, they didn't have an idea. They didn't have an idea at all. No, no, they, had all, they hadn't thought of that question at all. But um, when, actually, before we, I say I got into the car, so then he's rung his driver all right, from the bar, and he said to me, you must not speak to my driver. Only I can speak to the driver. Okay, and I'm like, right here. So he rings his driver, and we started out. I said, well, we can make a move towards it. And the next thing, his driver's coming towards us, and I'm walking along with him. He's such a massive man with a massive presence, eh, hey, like next to me. And then this other guy walking towards him. Who would it be? It's the dude in the Matrix car. And he's walking towards us. I'm like, holy shit, this dude's involved. Honestly, that could walk me out. I'm like, oh, I just, I'm like thinking maybe I shouldn't get in this car in my head. But um, I got there, and then this guy turns up. They had a chat. He didn't even, like, it was the way he treated me as if, as if I was supposed to do this deal. It was just so, I was so irrelevant to this. He was a really hard, I don't know how to explain it, but he's scary, this fella in the Matrix cut. But um, he wasn't quite as big, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, off I went. Got in, we go to the car. So he's under the story, he's just the driver. So I get to the car, and I, besides my passport and a bit of cash, everything else I had was in this fucking 32 kilogram backpack I'd been lugging around. All right? And I sort of thought, and he's opened the boot, and I'm taking this pack off, and I'm like, oh, I've never been to this town ever. Like, oh, if things go sideways, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. And back in these days, there was a thing called Lonely Planet, it was a book. And I had a version of it that was called Europe on a shoestring. It just had a bit about all of it. And I had it just in this side pocket of my backpack. So I've chucked my pack in the boot and just grabbed this Lonely Planet book. And they're looking at me. And in my mind, I just thought, if I have to run away, basically, if I get taken wherever the fuck and get, have to run away, I'll be able to have this book to sort of work out where I am. And... <laughs> this is my thinking at the time, anyway. That'll help me navigate this emergency. <laughs> Yeah, we might have been thick enough to stop a bullet too, I don't know, but anyway. Um, so I'm sitting in this car with this Lonely Planet book in my hand, we're driving along, and it, it was the weirdest trip in. It's probably a good half hour drive from Skiffle into Amsterdam. So um, we're driving along, and he told me not to talk to this other guy. I'm sitting in the back, and I couldn't help him, I'm nervous somehow. He's playing some music, and I just go, oh, what's, who's this? They're like, what? So who's on the radio? Who's this? And this uh, the hard bloke, he only said one word all night, like the scary guy, and he just goes, culture. And it just said shivers. <laughs> that was the name of a band. I was like, fuck. <laughs> 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 it was so scary. So anyway, um, we get in, and Sam Wales said, we're driving around. I said, I'll stay with you. And he's like, oh, no, no, we can't do that. I'm staying somewhere else. Yeah, he, hadn't thought, he didn't have, any, have a story for that. But so I was like, yeah, whatever. So we found somewhere right in Amsterdam, right in the guts way above my um, daily fucking backpacking budget, let me tell you. So off we go, and he came in. So the guy that's driving parks the car out front. Us two get out. Oh my, gets my pack out of the back. Out of the back. We go into the little concierge, and it must have been getting, you know, as I said, around 11 o'clock by this time. And so we go in, and there's a stereotypically Dutch guy at the county. Oh, hi, Moshe, how are you? And very friendly and all that. So, um, we're there and we check in, he gives me a room and then up we go and then old mate carries my bag and up, up we go to the room and the next thing I know I'm in my hotel room with him. The only person in the world besides a guy down in the car who's even scarier uh, that knows where I am in the world at this point in time. So we're sitting in the hotel room, as I said to you, the, the hangover was decent so I'm feeling pretty sick still. 
and I'll like now I paid 150 euro for a room when my daily budget was 10 or something like that. So I'm like, fuck it, I'm gonna eat all the biscuits and have all the coffee straight away, like to say, I'm born the kettle doing all that sort of stuff. And he's wanting to talk about what we're gonna to do tomorrow, like full on. So we sat there and I said, you wanna drink? And I'm kicking my shoes off and that, trying to get comfortable. And he's sitting there and he sat on the chair and then um, we're talking this over and over and over. It's just like going around, so it was not picking him apart and then he'd get angry. But he, the few things he kept saying is he's a man of God, I could trust him. A few times he said, I don't even drink, and I felt like someone walked out of cognac at the fucking airport for, but I didn't even say that. I'm like, man, you're not very good at this shit. That's <laughs> all. So anyway, um, then, then this, this went on for a while. And then at one point I'm like, well, you know, I might have 7,000 euro, but I don't know why. I should be the guy that takes it up. And we were sitting opposite each other. He, I'm on the bed and he's on his chair. And I always remember because it's the first time I've got close to being wild. And I'm sitting there, I had no shoes on. And he had these massive feet with these boots on. It would have been like this long. And so, and he started hitting me on the inside. And he, because we we're sitting like real close. He's like, you must do it, you know, you must do it. We must, and he's really hitting like this. And I'm like, oh shit, this is about to kick off. I, I didn't see this coming. The first thought I had was I just pulled my sneakers back on. Because I was like, if this, we have to tangle, I didn't want any of these big boots stomping all over my bare feet. So, anyway, so I did that, but it didn't get to that point. We managed it. At one point, I was back on the phone to Sani Ahmed because I was doing a wee and he brought the phone into the toilet to give it to me. That was fucking pretty scary. So, it's weird. So, um, then we're doing that. And then I, it's finally I wore him down. It was just like probably a couple of hours. It would have been one o'clock in the morning, mate. And um, we'd made the agreement, okay. In the morning, well, I hadn't committed to the 7,000 euro, but I said, what about we got halves in it? And I reckon he thought, oh, well, maybe three and a half thousand is good enough from this dude. Like, so he's like, oh yeah, maybe we'll do that, but we'll talk about it more tomorrow and we'll go and get the money. So the plan was, he was gonna leave tonight, finally, and they'd come back in the morning and we'd go and get the money and then go out to the airport and pick up the 50 million and we'd all live happily ever after. So as, um, as he was leaving, because he's still saying how he's a man of God, and he had a skivvy on, and he pulled this cross out. He's showing it to me, and he was sort of leaving, you know, I'm looking at this cross, and he's going, you know, you can trust me, Mr. Morgan. You must be able to know you can trust me. I'm a man of God, and over and over. And what I did then, is I'd seen this cross, and I said, well, you'll know what this is, and we're walking towards the door, and where we just put my pack down. There was this tiny pendant on one of the straps of my backpack, and it was given to me, it's just a Vidal, and if any of you are Christian or Catholic, my mother would give it to me because there's a protection or some shit, I don't know. So I'd put it on the strap of my backpack, and it was this tiny dove, and so he's sort of looking, but because he's so tall, and he probably didn't know what it was, so I think he might have been stretching the truth, saying he's a man of God, but he, um, he bent down to have a look, right? So he bends down, and as he bends down, though, his jacket on his suit rode up, and that's when I saw his gun. Yeah, and that's when I had, okay, that's when I had the okay neon frightened moment. <laughs> yeah, and um, honestly, my heart was just going fucking bomb, 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 like full on. And, um, you know, the cold sweats, all that, just massive a surge of adrenaline that would bring an elephant back to life, sort of thing, like. <laughs> And uh, well, I had to play it cool because he's almost out the door. So I'm there, and he's just, he did, luckily he didn't see the look on me, but and, um, he's walking out there. I'm saying, yeah, no worries, I'll catch you tomorrow, everything. 
and I'm just basically closing the door behind him. He's on the other side, still talking to me, and all I'm locking it up. I'm like, yeah, no worries, talking to you, no drums. Anyway, so then he left, and I took a moment, did take a moment to um, to gather myself because I was freaked out. And, uh, and because up to that point, I never felt like it was out of control. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> might be something that goes on. Plenty of people have disagreed with me, but I didn't, it didn't feel like it was out of control. And even to the point where I'm putting shoes back on, I'm like, oh, this ain't going to be good, but it wasn't out of control. But when I saw it going, I'm like, whoa, this is way beyond me. So um, then I uh, took a moment, and that after I'd gotten over the initial uh, fear, I guess, and surge of adrenaline, then the um, paranoia said, and uh, let me tell you, I didn't need to go to a coffee shop in Amsterdam to fucking freak out. It was, <laughs> it was full on. So I just made the decision, or oh, I'll have to just go home tomorrow. Like, this is way beyond me. So um, I, but then I'm like, part of me is like, oh, it's the first time I've ever been in this city. I can't just fucking go to a hotel room and live again. <laughs> so, and it's like one or two o'clock in the morning. So oh, I'll have a look around tonight. <laughs> so off I <laughs> I go downstairs, and the, the, little, the little Dutch guy at the counter, he's like, oh, hello, hello. And I'm like, you know, you're very pep for this time of night. <laughs> he wants to talk to me. He dashes me over, and he's like, oh, you know, how are you? And I said, yeah, I'm a bit tired, but, you know, I'm just going to have a look around because I'm going to leave tomorrow. And he's like, oh, are you? Like, and um, then he basically goes, oh, did you know the people you came in with? And I'm like, oh, maybe. What <laughs> Why is that? And he goes, oh, he just wanted to tell me. He didn't know me. He just goes, oh, I just wanted to let you know, you know, there's some very dangerous people in Amsterdam. And um, you must be very careful like this. And, you know, he's a really nice fella. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, no worries. Yeah, no, it's, it's all good, mate. But it just freaked me out even more. So I actually had a look around Amsterdam, but in my head, everyone was involved with this fucking setup. <laughs> Every person I saw. And then this poor woman was, must have been begging or something. And I've been back, I lived in Holland years later, even for a little while, but at this point, late at night, probably should have been walking around, I always remember I scared myself, because a guy, or I thought it was a lady, I can't remember, but they tugged on my jacket from behind to get me attention, and I turned around and put him up against this wall like that, and went, whoa, I'm way too wound up to be wandering around here, I nearly like let go, and I was, ooh, righto, so, I went, ooh, and they were like, oh, I just want some money, you know, that I'm, so I went back to the hotel room and tried to get some sleep. And then at 7 o'clock in the morning, the phone in my room rings. And there's obviously only two people in the whole world that know I'm there, and that's the two guys that dropped me off. So I didn't answer it, I'll be honest, I was too frightened to answer it. And it rang about every 15 or 20 minutes till I left. And um, I, went, I did have some breakfast, because I freaked some Italian guys out at breakfast and tried to hang out with them. And they were more friendly, but they were kind of, why do you want to hang out with us so much? I just want to friend them. But, um, so basically, I, I, I did, I tried to have a little look in the morning, but I basically went from the hotel room pretty early to the airport, uh, to the train station. At the train station, a Dutch lady gave me a flower. I was like, I'm moving, I don't know, how, that was just weird. but. Um, to the airport and I got the next plane back to London and that's when I started to feel safe at finally. And so like when you tell a yarn or a joke or something, you try and finish it off with like a, I don't know, a whimsical insight or something amusing. But I haven't really done that with this. My favourite bit of this whole story though comes like a couple of years later 
and it was when I was back in Australia and I was working as export manager with this agribusiness and um, because of my role as export manager, heaps of spam and emails would be sent to that address and the IT department obviously read all the emails and they filter out a heap of them. And one day I'm going to this meeting and the IT manager let slip that he thought I was out of the country for, for work. And I'm like, oh yeah, well, why, do you, why do you think that? You've been reading my emails. And he admitted to it and he was saying how he loved to read my emails because I was so entertaining. But he, but he couldn't, he honestly couldn't tell when I was talking to a real customer or when I was just winding people up. And so he, um, and then I said to him, I said, well, mate, I'll give you a tip, is uh, when the email says to the other person to meet me in some random airport around the world, that's usually me bullshitting people. And um, he was like, really? Yeah, because he, I told him this yarn, he really was like, holy shit. And, and I said, yeah, so I'm telling people, all these scammers around the world to meet me, and so meet me in these airports. And so if there's anything to take home from this, Yarn, is um, I think if you, I would say to people to respond to your spam emails <laughs> and tell people to meet you in hotels around the room and just have a shower. That's it. Another episode of The Story Chunder has come to an end. If you like us, follow us on all of our social medias at The Story Chunder. If you want to be a storyteller, please uh, send us an email at thestorychunder at gmail.com. Listen to our podcast, like, subscribe, share with your friends, go to our YouTube channel. Just everything Story Chunder, Story Chunder, Story Chunder. <laughs> Thanks. It's been Matt Young. I hope you enjoyed this extended uh, podcast uh, with Dooney telling us the long, long story. And we'll see you next time at the Story Chunder. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.